Well, good morning, everybody. Well, that was good morning, weak. Jim. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right. It's kind of a subdued morning this morning. That's okay. We are uh, we're going to start out uh, doing a little background work as we begin this new series today, 12 Apostolic Men. Uh, now, last week, uh, I gave you some homework, and I saw some discussion on Facebook about how evil and wicked I am, and I chose to ignore that and be the bigger person. Uh, not that I'm offended in any way, shape, or form, or would ever call out anybody for such hateful, hateful words, hateful words. I was very disappointed. If I had a chalkboard, I'd put their names up here with a check next to them. Um, no, but did Monica needs a reprimand as well? So we should talk about her while she's not here, right? Is that the okay? Ah, there we go. So. So you're not convicted? Excellent, excellent. I'm glad. Because uh, that was a totally man-made rule, so that's good. You shouldn't be convicted. Um, so the suggestion last week was that you watch 12 Angry Men, the movie. So did anybody watch 12 Angry Men? You did. You watched it? Excellent. Wonderful. Uh, no, no. So there was, there was a group of dissenters that decided to read the play as opposed to watch the movie. Um, if you, yeah, Netflix has got it. Uh, if you go to the Internet Movie Database, imdb.com, anybody ever been there? This is where you go to find cool stuff about movies, yes. Uh, it's the number eight movie of all time. It's a really, really good movie. Uh, old, black and white. It was written on paper. It was written on paper, yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is you read the 1611 version of the play. Yes, excellent, excellent. Just making sure there. Got to go back to the original. Uh, yeah, so it's got Henry Fonda, Jack Klegman, uh, uh, Ed Begley, I mean, just a slew of old-school great actors. And the premise of the movie is that uh, 12 men come together for a jury. <clears throat> and there's a murder trial, and uh, going in, Henry Fonda's character is the only one that just kind of intuitively thinks, you know, that there may be some reasonable doubt here. There may be some reasonable doubt. And over the course of the movie they all come to the conclusion that there's actually some reasonable doubt here. So it's about a group of 12 men who start out with one opinion and end with another as a result of spending time together and time examining truth, which I think is a great picture of the 12 apostles themselves. So one of the, I would still recommend that you go watch the movie. It's a great movie, tons of one-liners that I use regularly in this room, so you might pick them up periodically. So uh, the schedule for this is a, a quick three-week series. Uh, today we'll look at the Apostles' Calling next week, um, their individual characters, and then the following week, uh, what they did, what they're known for, uh, and how they're remembered uh, today. So knowledge objectives, first thing on your handout. Uh, number one, I want you to be able to list the 12 Apostles. Yes. So can anybody do that now? without looking at the page and memorizing them in the next 10 seconds. Can anybody do that now? So everybody's looking down. So I'm going to say the answer is maybe a no. I've seen a lot of sunburned faces today. That's kind of cool. Y'all got out in the... This is good. Um, so to be able to list the 12... Now everybody's looking around like, who's sunburned? Yes, it's okay. Sorry. Uh, to be able to list the 12 apostles. Number two, to understand how they were chosen. So those are the two things I want to look at today. Understand how they were chosen. Number three, to see the types of people God chooses. 
uh, to better understand their personalities, to see how time with Jesus changed them, and to recognize their symbols in everyday life because there's a ton of them all around Chattanooga. So I'll bring in uh, two weeks from now pictures from all around Chattanooga that are supposed to communicate a certain message when you see them. And we as Baptists, because we ignore completely and totally everything church history, we ignore all of that stuff and don't pick up on any of it. So I is one, so I can talk about it. So just so the first question is, who are they? So the, there's four apostolic lists in scriptures. Uh, and I want you to think about concentric circles. Um, Jules, can I get a marker? I meant to do this before class, but I'll do it now. So does anybody know what concentric circles are? Thank you. Circles inside of circles, yes. It sounds like fun on a Sunday morning. Um, so Jesus, when he traveled the earth, had uh, different groups that he went uh, all over the place with, right? There were the 12 that he kept with him a lot, right? But outside the 12, there was actually a group of how many? Does anybody know? There was a larger group of 70, and he actually sent this group of 70 out once, and they all came back and made reports and whatnot. Outside the 70, there were a whole lot more, somewhere around uh, 500 plus. Uh, a couple different spots in Scripture it talks about this big throngs that would follow him and people that were kind of in and out. But the idea here is that, that he had a, a certain amount, of, and then there were the crowds on the outside, right? So... Got to give them credit for showing up too. So uh, there's these crowds he engaged with. There's the 500, the 70, and the 12. And even inside the 12, there were kind of this inner circle. You ever heard of that before? Yep. How many was in, on the inner circle? Three. Three, right? So there's really a three here. And, and really, even on the inner circle, there's a, there's a one, right? So, so this idea that that Jesus spent time with a lot of people, but he spent more time with very specific people. Um, I, I taught this series, I think it was, what, seven or eight years ago uh, at the Chattanooga campus on Wednesday nights. And I ended with a, a story, is a totally fictional story, uh, that is in uh, uh, some history books. And it's a conversation between Jesus and Gabriel when Jesus goes back to heaven, which is an interesting thought, you know, that... There may be some conversations in heaven that we're not privy to. Imagine that, right? Um, hashtag Job. Um, so Jesus goes back, and Gabriel asks him, he said, So it's great to have you back, Master. This is fantastic. Um, so what's your plan now? Because I noticed you just kind of left, and it, it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of structure, right? And, and Jesus says, Well, you know, my plan is for those men and women that I have taught to take the gospel and to tell others and for them to tell others and for them to tell others. And, and Gabriel asked the question, he says, well, what, is, what if Peter gets scared? And what if Thomas forgets? And, you know, what if Bartholomew decides that he doesn't want to tell anybody? What, what's, what's your backup plan? And Jesus looks at him and he says, I don't have a backup plan. They're my plan. Uh, and it's this, it's this kind of sobering moment where you go, oh, it's on us. This is up to us to do. Uh, now, we are empowered with the Holy Spirit, obviously, but this is on us. Jesus spent a tremendous amount of time with a very small number of people so that they would get it, they would understand the truth, and then go change the world with it. 
So as we look at these lists, I want you to see a couple patterns. So there's a list in Matthew, there's a list in Mark, there's a list in Luke, and there's a list in Acts. Yes, gotcha. Sorry, you got to be paying attention this morning. So the list in Matthew uh, lists Simon Peter first, and then Andrew, then James, and John. Uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, not the first James. We don't double count. Uh, Labaius, also known as Thaddeus, uh, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. Now, what's interesting about the list is that some of them show up in the exact same spot every single time. And this actually is intended to communicate something very, very specific. So who shows up first in every single list? Peter does. That's your blank on the right. Under Acts 1.13, that's Peter. And James and John and Andrew, they kind of switch around there a couple different places. Who shows up fifth every single time? Philip. Philip shows up fifth. And Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew switch around. And then who shows up ninth every time? The other James, James the Less. <clears throat> How would you like to be known as James the Less for all of church history, right? <laughs> and he was pro- what if he was taller than the first James too, right? I mean, that would just be... That would be so offensive. Uh, And then, so in the the list in Acts, how many do you count in the list in Acts? Eleven. And we only have eleven because Judas is dead at this point. Yes, Judas went out and hung himself after he betrayed Christ. Uh, So anybody know the person who fulfilled Judas' role? Matthias, yes, or Matthias. That was the guy that they cast lots for to figure out who who should fill in the twelfth spot because they felt Jesus picked twelve. We ought to have twelve. Sounds like a good number. Right? It shows up in the Old Testament, so maybe we should do that. So this idea that uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew uh, were closer, were more important, and if you, if you actually look at the list of people, those first three or four actually had significant impacts in the rest of the New Testament. Right? They wrote uh, some of the New Testament, actually. So, so this order matters. Now, if you go through, and one of the confusing things about doing a series like this is that if you go through the New Testament and you count all the different names that Jesus gives or that they refer to the disciples as, there's over 20 different names for 12 guys. So you may or may not know that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. doesn't sound anything alike. This is not like Johnny gets abbreviated to John. This is Nathaniel and Bartholomew, radically different names. Um, Thomas is my favorite. Thomas, Didymus, and Judas Thomas. Because those all have a lot in common, right? And then you got Thaddeus, Jude, and Labaius. So there's several different Judes. There's a couple of Judases. It's, I mean, it's just all over the place. Andrew and Philip are the only two that, that's the only way they're referred to the entire time, just Andrew and Philip. And then the real tough one in my mind is John. Because are you talking about John the Baptist? Or are you talking about John the Evangelist, who was actually one of the 12 apostles? Because John the Baptist was not one of the 12 apostles. A lot of people think he was. He wasn't. What's that? He was, dead. Uh, he was dead, yes. They're all dead. But yes, he, he, he died during that, that period. He did not make it to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Correct. So, uh, so that's who they are. Uh, and if you flip over your page, uh, your handout, and look at the very bottom of the back side, there is a song to the tune of Jesus Loves Me. Now, some of you may have actually sung this as a child to learn the names of the apostles. Anybody do this? Yes, I got two. Yep. Um, when I taught this several years ago, uh, and I asked the question, can anybody list the 12 apostles? Somebody stood up, they raised their hand, they stood up, and I watched their mouth. Uh, they were singing it, and then they would say the, the names. It was absolutely hilarious. And everybody in the room was going, 
what in the world are they doing? And then what I had Tony Carroll do was lead us in that song as a congregation to the tune of Jesus Loves Me. And Tony, he gave me all kinds of grief. Are you going to make me sing this song? Yes, I am, Tony. I would love. We would like to learn these words. This is, these, these names are important. So it was, it was really funny. So my next question is, how did they get there? How did they get there? Now, one of the things that, um, that I want us to understand is that Jesus never did anything on accident, right? There was never a, oh, I guess I should pick some guys to come alongside. Let's put some thought into that. That, that never occurred. He spent a tremendous amount of pr- time in prayer the night before, before he actually went out and selected who he wanted to walk with him. Um, but I want to give you a little background in the Jewish educational system to understand when a Jew looks at the New Testament and reads through and sees how Jesus picked these guys, it is completely different than how we look at it. Because we look at it and we say, Jesus walks up to Matthew and he goes, follow me. And Matthew goes... And, and we look around and we go, dude had a job. He was in the middle of his shift. What in the world? That is ridiculous. Why? No way. I mean, there is no way that is going to happen, right? So, so what, was the, what was the construct? What was the, the setting, the backstory, so that Matthew would actually do that? So let's talk about the Jewish educational system for a second. So uh, in Jewish times, there were three levels of Jewish education. The first is Beit Safar. This next set of stuff is coming from uh, uh, Ray Vanderloin. He, he actually is the guy that taught Rob Bell this that when it ended up in the NUMA series, Dust. I went and watched some of Ray's videos this week. Amazing, amazing stuff. Um, Beit Safar, it means house of the book. House of the book. So little Jewish boys and girls when they were five or six years old in first century times would show up at the synagogue. And the synagogue usually had a couple different parts. So the main section of the synagogue was where the, uh, the rabbis, the, those were the teachers of the day, would sit and they would open the Torah and they would show folks the scroll and then they would begin to teach. Usually on the side of the synagogue was a smaller room and that's where the boys and girls went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for several hours a day. And the rabbi would teach them using the Torah itself how to read, how to write, how to understand these things. So, so the first and only book, really, that the little Jewish boys and girls would be, experience, be exposed to for their educational was the Bible. It was all about the Bible. So from age 5 or 6 to about the age of 10 or 12, they would actually memorize the law. That was the goal. The goal was to memorize the law. So take your Bibles, put your index finger before Genesis and your thumb after Deuteronomy. That was fantastic, yes. This, is, this example no longer works, right? <clears throat> when I taught this the first time, it was great. Everybody could do it. And now it's like, I'm holding my iPhone. It doesn't work, yes. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the age of 10 or 11, maybe even 12, if you were slower, uh, you had the, the, uh, the law memorized. So think about that. You think that would prepare you a little bit for things that life threw at you? Just perhaps, right? I mean, just perhaps. Some of you are going, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. This is ab- my kid could never, yeah, they could. We just don't. We, we, we undervalue what their capacity is. Um, so, so at the end of this educational level, the vast majority, and I mean the vast majority of the kids, would go and learn a trade. Um, by the age of 11 or 12, girls are about ready to get married. Uh, boys are about ready to get married. 
I mean, it's, it's crazy to try to wrap your head around that, but that was the, the thing of the day. Uh, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I'm just going, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, but the girls would have been dismissed at this point. Sorry, it was a very sexist society. Um, and the brightest of the boys would have hung around, and they would have gone on to level two, which is Beit Talmud, the house of study, house of study. Uh, and even now, you can go to Israel, and you can see Talmudim, uh, and these are the disciples of the rabbis, and they are following the rabbi all around the place. Wherever the rabbi goes, that's where they go. Uh, and this is the time where they would have learned the rest of the Old Testament, so to memorize Judges all the way to Malachi. Okay? So, you've, so by the time you're 13, 14, maybe as late as 15, you've got the entire Old Testament memorized. Which is just, it's still, just every time I say this, it just messes with my head. Um, and if I didn't have just tons of uh, archaeological evidence to support this, I wouldn't believe it myself. But the idea here is that, uh, that as you're memorizing this Old Testament, you're also learning the art of Jewish questions and answers. Um, now, one of the things that you notice as you read through the Gospels is that Jesus was asked a lot of questions. Um, I read somebody this week that said he was asked a total of 41 questions in the Gospels. I said, okay. Now, how did Jesus typically respond when he was asked a question? With a question. Now, today, in American dialogue, that's considered being a what? A smart aleck, right? That's considered being a smart aleck. And many people, many Americans, when they read the New Testament for the first time and they look how Jesus responded, go, he's a jerk. I mean, he's just, he's just a jerk. And, and the reality is, that's not the case. Because answering a question with a statement was considered a very low level of understanding. Answering a question with a question was considered a higher level type of understanding. So, Zeke, if I asked you, what is two plus two? What is eight minus four? <laughs> very good. Very good. You see what he did? He, said, he, he, he communicated to me, he knew the answer, and he knew how to frame it a different way and come back. So they would do this with facts, and they would also do this with the Scripture. So they would name a few, they would list a few verses, and they would stop before the verse they wanted to get to. And the rabbi would then uh, respond with some other set of Scripture that referenced the same verse, and the Talmudim would have to respond with a different set of Scripture that, and it's just amazing. And the only way you can pull this off is if you have the whole thing memorized. This doesn't work if you go, give me just a sec, let me get the right scroll and look that up. That doesn't work. They didn't have uh, iPads. They didn't have any electronic devices to help them and aid them in this. It was all based on memory. So this art of asking questions is what they learned at this point. Now, by the time you were 14 or 15, the best of the best would go on to one more level. And the way this would work is if you wanted to continue in your educational desires, you would pursue the rabbi, and you would go and you would sit and talk to the rabbi, and you would say, Rabbi, I want to be, uh, I want you to train me in Beit Midrash. I want you to take the next step with me and teach me how to be just like you, and that's the house of learning. Um, and this is where you would learn the rabbi's yoke, and this is the, the rabbi's interpretation of the law. So one rabbi might say, well, you can, on the Sabbath, you can walk as far as it is to the synagogue. 
That's as much work as you can do. And another rabbi might say, well, that's stupid because you're there. you got to get home. So you can walk twice as far as it is to the synagogue to get there and to get back. And another rabbi might say, yeah, that's okay, but what if you got to pick somebody up? You can walk that far plus 100 paces and back. I mean, it was just what was their interpretation? What was their application? What was their yoke that they took upon them? And being like the rabbi was not, and this is the big thing, one of the big points for today, was not just knowing what the rabbi knew. It was being who the rabbi was. So your next blank here is being like the rabbi, a disciple. And discipleship is not about knowledge. Discipleship is about doing. And, and we today have turned discipleship, I think, a lot more toward the knowing piece as opposed to the doing piece. So, uh, so this is what the rabbi would do. This interview process would look something like this. The student would come and they would approach the rabbi and say, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi would then pepper the student with questions. So these are those questions with the question, with the question, with the question, with the question, with the question. And they just go this for hours. Because the rabbi is trying to figure out, does this student have what it takes to be me one day? If I train this person for 15 years, can this person be me? And then go train other rabbis. Now, the, the big deal about this is that the rabbi was the most... Uh, is the highest level of respect in the whole community, which is kind of amazing, right? I mean, can you imagine Gary and Daryl and Brian having the highest level of respect for the whole community? Everybody respected them more than any other position. That would be kind of cool. But in this culture, that was the way it was. The rabbi was the best of the best. And the student always pursued the rabbi. The rabbi never went out and pursued individual students. It was up to the student to pursue the rabbi. So... When Jesus walks up to Matthew, who is a what? Tax collector. What is a tax collector? A tax collector is not a what? A tax collector is not not a Talmudine. A tax collector is not somebody who is training to be a disciple. A tax collector is somebody who who did well with Beit Safar and then was asked to go do something else. He was not the best of the best of the best, right? So when Jesus walks up to Matthew and the rabbi comes up and says, follow me. (laughs) I just got drafted by the NBA. (laughs) I mean, this is amazing, right? I was the B team player in middle school, and now David Stern is walking up to me and going, here's a contract to play in the NBA. (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. This is phenomenal. This is the best news in my entire life. I can't believe somebody would pick me. So this is the mindset as we go into the text. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 if you would. And as you're turning there, there was a phrase that developed during this day that the rabbis would say to other rabbinical students, and the students would say to each other. And the phrase was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea was that you're so close to the rabbi that whatever the rabbi was walking through at the end of the day was on you because you're following behind. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbis. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Start with verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So what were they? Fishermen. Fishermen. What were they not? They were not 
<laughs> they were not tax collectors. Yes, very good. That was a smart aleck response, okay? Uh, why were they fishermen? They weren't the best. They were not the best. They were asked to leave the Jewish educational system at some point. Now, the reality is that parents would pray for their children to become rabbis. They wanted their little boys to become rabbis. Parents would pray for their little girls to marry rabbis. I mean, it was, this, was the, this was the highest level. In verse 19, Then he, Jesus, said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they, they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brothers, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat. What's the next phrase? And their father. Now, picture this, though. What, if Zebedee was a righteous man, what was Zebedee praying for? Zebedee was praying for that his sons would be rabbis. And we are years past the point where that decision was made at this time. Zebedee did not get his prayers answered. So have you ever had a prayer that was years past when you thought it would be answered, and then all of a sudden it gets answered? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. And the joy associated with that prayer being answered late, in air quotes, right? Because it's never late in God's timing. So my question is, was Zebedee mad? No. I can see Zebedee walking through the streets the next day of the town. Guess where my boys are? My boys are following the rabbi. They're getting covered in that dust today. My boys got drafted. Woohoo! Um, I, I read one commentator that talked about this would be the equivalent of the president of Harvard walking into your high schooler's living room and going, you know what? We want your child. We're going to give him a full ride. Come on. You think you're going to tell that story? Heck yeah, you're going to tell that story. The president of Harvard doesn't do that. You have to seek them out. You have to beg and fill out papers after papers after papers and have years of experience so that, yay, maybe we'll be considered for this. They don't show up and draft you. This whole thing was turned on its head when Jesus did this. Flip over to John chapter 1. We'll see Philip and Bartholomew. John chapter 1. <clears throat> We'll start actually with verse 43. It says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, He said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael, whose name is Bartholomew, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Wonderful. Let's go worship him now. <laughs> no. Nathaniel said to him, one of the most sarcastic comments in the entire Bible, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> and you're like, man, that's just, that's hardcore. And, and, and again, so here's what I love. From the start of the story of Jesus, God sets up this concept that he is going to take and use people and things from unlikely places to do great things for him. So out of Nazareth, who, whose people had a reputation for being rude and unintelligent, that was, that was their reputation at the time. 
They actually interacted with Gentiles. <laughs> you've, you've messed up here. You've crossed cultural problems here. And Philip said to him, come and see. So did Philip argue with him? Did he debate him? Here's the proofs. No, he just said, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in him in whom is no deceit or fraud or hypocrisy. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now let me give you a little context here. Anybody ever been near a fig tree? Fig tree? What kind of leaves do fig trees have? Fig leaves, yes, very good. I set myself up for that one, didn't I? Yes, yes I did. Fig leaves have big, big leaves. They're great for shade. They're great for sitting under and reading. They're great for being outside and studying under. And the phrase, under the fig leaves, was a phrase that the rabbis used to describe time spent studying on and meditating on Scripture. Okay? So that's a phrase that's kind of interchangeable in the New Testament. You see, under the fig leaves, that's a, I'm studying Scripture. So before Philip called you, when you were studying the Scripture, I saw you. Oh, well, that's kind of cool. There's a scary concept, right? Jesus is watching our devotions. Verse 49, Nathanael answered unto him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, Philip called him the son of Joseph, right? And Nathaniel or Bartholomew gets it right and calls him the son of God. Verse 50, Jesus answered to him and said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Understatement of the day, yes. Yes, he will. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you go, what? It feels, like we, it feels like we took a left turn somewhere and we missed the sign, right? Angels ascending and descending and you will see the Son of Man. This is a quote from Genesis chapter 28, which most of the commentators think was the passage that he was actually studying, which really would have messed with his head. Right? I mean, that would have, now this is a guess, that would have really messed with his head. But this concept that you're going to see interaction between heaven and earth, this is what's on your plate that's coming up. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So let's go to Matthew 9, verse 9, and we'll look at the calling of Matthew, which I've already described a little bit, but let's make sure, make sure I got it right with the text here. So Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. And this is the guy who actually wrote the book of Matthew. Um, Mark and Luke call him Levi. Whenever you're seeing Levi in, in Mark and Luke, that's actually Matthew. Saw a name Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, Matthew was a what? He was a tax collector. He was also of what uh, nationality? He was a Jew. And Jewish tax collectors are roughly equivalent to the pond scum on the underside of a dirty pot in the kitchen. Okay? They were seen as traitors and extortionists in this time because you're working for the government that is oppressing us. So let's say, let's say that the, I don't know, let's say Iraq somehow or another manages to develop weapons such that they can cripple the United States, 
they invade the U.S. and they team up with Iran. They take over Iran, and they're running our country, okay? And they put out a job description for people to go collect taxes for the Iranian leadership in the United States of America. And Zeke applies. And Zeke gets the job, because Zeke's awesome, by the way. I mean, Zeke is just fantastic. And Zeke gets the job. What's your opinion of Zeke? I mean, that's a traitor. You, you're going to hate him. What's your opinion of Zeke if Zeke marks up the taxes and pockets some himself? Egg sucking dog. <laughs> right? What, so what did somebody say? No, 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 no. Not intending to go there. <clears throat> um, uh, sitting at the tax office, right? So he's sitting at the tax office overtaxing his own people, his own people, and the rabbi comes up to the pond scum who has been cast out who nobody likes, who everybody has said is not good enough and says, follow me. <laughs> Lottery winner, right? This is everything in his life that has been a complete and total train wreck up to this point fixed. Yeah, we hit the reset button because now I'm going to be trained to be a rabbi. He went from tax collector to Rabbi trainee, in two words. It's beautiful, spectacularly, spectacularly beautiful. So he arose and followed him. You think? Yeah, he did. So you might ask, what about Thomas, James, Simon, Jude, and Judas Iscariot? We don't know how they were called. Their stories aren't recorded in the Scripture, how Jesus found them and reached out. Um, So I'm not going to guess. There's all kinds of guesses. I'm not going to guess. So what's the point? Well, number one, order matters. I think order matters. So, so what I do with that, understand my place. If you are in the center circle or on the outside, move toward Jesus. It's always a good move. Number two, the rabbi chooses. Whether the student came to the rabbi or the rabbi came to the student, the rabbi chooses, which is critically important. Our rabbi, Jesus, comes to the not good enoughs, to the washouts, to the B team, to the tax collectors, to the pond scum on the underside of that nasty pot that's in your kitchen and says, follow me. And I'm glad he does because that's where we are. We're the Gentiles. So what do I do with that? Well, say yes, right? I mean, get up, (laughs) move. Uh, And then number three, discipleship is doing. Discipleship is doing. It is not just about knowing. It is not just about knowing. So number three, best blank I could come up with here. Get dusty. Get dusty. Follow the rabbi. Now, I was thinking this week about the things that I've been covered in dust with. Um, I've been covered in a lot of different kinds of dust because I have followed a lot of different things in my life. Uh, I have followed individual people that were celebrity kind of status. Uh, I, was fo- I was covered in the dust of basketball for years and years and years because that was my God. Uh, I have been covered in the dust of Facebook and Twitter. Yes, I acknowledge. Uh, but the most enjoyable times of my life is when I've been following Jesus and been covered in that dust. So be careful what you follow because it will cover you. So get dusty. 
and get dusty with Jesus' dust, not with somebody else's dust. That's important. All right, now, next week, we're going to be looking at um, the Apostles' character. So all the different characters, and they were, a, <laughs> they were a set of characters, let me tell you. Uh, imagine how Matthew would have been treated, right, in this group. You've got 11 other Jews, and you bring in a traitor in the midst? What kind of rabbi is this, right? They've got to be wondering about him. They've got to be wondering. So uh, the homework for next week is to come in knowing the names of the apostles. I gave you a song. Teach it to your kids. You teach it to your kids, you'll learn it by the time they learn it. Okay? Yes? Was it normal for the other rabbis of the day to take on 12 people, or would they just mean for like one or two? It was very normal for that size. Very normal for that size. That depending upon the rabbi's yoke would depend on how many people he took on. Some would take on a few less, some would take on a few more, but you could only manage so many of these. Now, remember, the, you didn't actually, you couldn't become a rabbi until you turned 30. That was the earliest age you could become a rabbi. And you could say you're a rabbi before that, but you weren't really a rabbi. And this, this process didn't start until you were 14 or 15. So most of these folks would study under the, as a Talmudian for 15 years. And how long was Jesus on the earth? doing this ministry, three, three and a half years. When everybody talks about the crash course that the disciples got, yeah, one-fifth the time, and they went and changed the world with one-fifth the time. Right? It's beautiful. It's absolutely. So, so he had a small number of people, and he spent a lot of time with them. So great question, though. Yes? Yes. Many, many, many years. Yes. You know, he, he knew all this stuff, yes. basically, but he yep. still humbled himself to follow somebody else right. for all those years, and he was well enough respected that even the Sadducees called him rabbi. That's exactly right. So it wasn't like he was just this carpenter. He, they always give us this picture that he was just this, you know, worked with his hands kind of right. guy. He just knew a lot, but he really studied. Yes. He was not a carpenter. His daddy was a carpenter. He was a rabbi. This was different. His daddy would have taught him some things about carpentry, yes. He studied the Old Testament. He had the Old Testament memorized. So when we look at Jesus and he tells these stories and he's standing out in the middle of a field and he starts quoting the scripture, it's because he had the whole thing memorized. It's brilliant. And yes, so do you remember the story when Mary and Joseph lost him? And he's sitting back, where was he? In the synagogue, what was he doing? He was teaching, he was asking questions. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He, had, he was demonstrating at age 12 that he was a step ahead of all the other Talmudim. He was already asking questions and astounding them with his understanding. So when he would ask a question and they would respond back with a question, he would confuse them with his question back. <laughs> I love it. He's 12 years old and he's messing with the religious elite. I love it. I love it. I love it. I tell you, Everyone respects him, yep. and he's saying stuff that we feel is... I tell you what I think really ticked him off. I think what really ticked him off is who he picked to be his Talmudine. He broke their system. And if you ever... Now, I've been in education. If you ever want to tick educational people off, you mess with the system. And most rabbis were already married by the age of yes. 32, and he wasn't. Correct. Correct. It was all sorts of little outliers here and there. It was a beautiful, beautiful... And when you read the New Testament, when you put this in context, you go, 
Oh my gosh, no wonder they were all mad at him. He broke their little system. <laughs> he fulfilled the law while he was doing it, but he broke their little system. Yeah, it's amazing. Great question. Anybody else got a question? No guarantees that I can answer it, but I'll try. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for coming to Sunday School today. Um, come in with your questions next week. We'll have a little Q&A time as well. So uh, make sure you put your prayer requests on the page. Pray as a group. Make sure your name is on there somewhere. Uh, and pray as a group and you're dismissed. Thanks for coming.